Just going to ask you to turn in your Bibles, or you can look up on, maybe on the screen, I'm not too sure, but I'm, no, okay, it's Ephesians chapter 2, and I'm going to read from verse 1, now we're going to be looking at verse 1 to 3, but just to give it a context, I'll read through to verse 10. And here Paul says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. And then he goes on. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Let's just pray. Father, we ask again tonight that by your Spirit, you'll open up your word to us, and that you'll speak into each of our hearts, that you'll challenge us and give us just the desire to put into action whatever you're saying. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me just begin here with a confession that I have preached on this passage before. The first time I preached on it was during my time at Spurgeon's a long time ago when I was the student pastor of a little church in rural Northamptonshire. I want to say, don't worry, because not one word of it has found its way into what I'm going to say tonight, because it was so good, I ripped it up immediately. But I remember uh, talking one lunchtime uh, to Peter Manson, who was our pastoral studies lecturer, but one reaction that I'd had to this sermon A wealthy young, not a wealthy young lady, she wasn't that, a wealthy local lady who occasionally attended the church and who gave what in their context were substantial gifts every now and again, had told the treasurer that she wouldn't be back because she felt that in my preaching I had inferred she was a sinner. The treasurer, I have to say, seemed a little bit regretful as he shared this with me. For a little while, I felt just a wee tinge of guilt that what I'd said had been responsible for putting something of a dent in the church's balance sheet. Peter Manson seemed to find my discomfort at this initially amusing. But then when he saw my downcast face, he consoled me that so long as I shared the results of sin for mankind that I'd also gone on to share God's remedy for sin in Jesus Christ. As long as I'd done that, that I was in the clear, that I'd done my duty 
as a preacher and as a pastor. Now, in fact, as I've thought about this over the years, I've been encouraged, you know, thinking that though that sermon maybe wasn't really all that good, yet still there had been enough in it to rightly convict a woman of the fact that she was, as we all are, a sinner. Indeed, what actually I've thought about is more worrying that she'd managed to go to a Baptist church for a number of years without being confronted by that truth. So while I hope that what I'm going to share now won't offend anybody, you know, I have to say, if I offend somebody for the same reason, then I'll be sad, but I still won't be sorry. Okay, well, last time uh, we were in Ephesians, we finished looking at, at Paul's incredible prayer there in Ephesians 1, a prayer where topics like the hope and inheritance that is ours in Christ, and finally last week, the power that comes into our life that is available to us through faith in Christ. We looked at that, the power of the risen Christ, the power of the ascended Christ, the power of the reigning Christ. All these topics and more are covered in that first chapter. And Harold Honer, somebody who I've quoted a number of times already, he links what we've just covered in chapter 1 with what we're now moving on to in chapters 2 and 3 in terms of how here this prayer then works its way out. It's worked out in the life of the church, in the life of the people of God. For example, what's what our focus is this week, how this power of God actually breaks into our lives, showing how God then makes sinners into saints and then builds them into the church, the body of Christ. And then he talks about the passage we're looking at here in particular. He says in, verses, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, Paul states how sinners who deserve nothing but wrath become trophies of his grace. Now, in order to kind of structure what I'm going to share with you, I want in this first look at Ephesians 2, in these first three verses, to build it around a well-known Christian concept, saved. I want us to look at what by the power of God we are saved from through faith in Christ. Let me just say first though, that, that you know, properly understood, saved is one of the most helpful and certainly is one of the most biblical terms used by Christians. It really is, and it's a bit of a, a detour but just let me say that among those sayings that we sometimes use that I'm not so keen on are when people talk about things like accepting Christ, of the need to decide, to make a decision for Christ. Because you see, while there is an element of truth in those statements, yet for me, they put the emphasis in entirely the wrong place. I mean, search the Bible and you won't find phrases like this in the writings of someone like Paul. And why not? Because they're too man-centered. Because they shift the onus for our salvation into our court rather than God's. And as a result, well then becoming a Christian can become a much less urgent affair. You see, if we decide then we think, well, we can take our time to decide. But you know what? I will remember 
hearing Peter Cottrell, one-time principal of the, the London Bible College, I remember hearing him speaking on this. And he said that night that the New Testament position is not that we should come to Christ at our leisure, but rather that we should flee to Christ for refuge. That once our eyes are open to see the reality of our situation now without Jesus Christ, living now under God's wrath because of our sin and facing only the terrible prospect of God's final judgment unless that sin is dealt with, well then, we should not so much decide as run to Jesus. We don't do Jesus a favor by accepting Him. Rather, we beg Him to take us to Himself. But as I said, saved, so long as it's properly understood, is certainly a biblical term. But note the emphasis there on properly understood. Because you see, too often, it actually isn't. And it isn't when being saved is seen as something that happens on one momentous day, in one momentous moment in our lives. And then that's it. That's all there is until it's all gloriously fulfilled, either at our death or Christ's return. But no, no. That's not all that it means to be saved. For biblically, salvation is both a climax and a process. You see, it's something that we receive in an instant, though emotionally we're not always aware exactly when that instant is. But then from that, salvation, being saved, is something that we grow into. As we turn to God, as we open our hearts to God, as we receive from God. You see, when we're saved, we're born again as spiritual babies. That's the climax. But we are expected to go on from that. We're expected to grow, to progress, to make that salvation more and more ours, to go on to spiritual maturity. That's the process of salvation. But let's look then at what God saves us from by His power released into our lives through Jesus Christ. So first then, we are saved from death. Saved from death, verse 1 and 2. As for you, he says, you are dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. Now, here Paul sets an interesting pair of concepts side by side. That without Christ, if the power of Christ has not broken into our lives, then though we are alive, yet in fact, we are dead. What's Paul talking about here then? In, in what sense can people who are alive be dead? Well, that Paul makes clear. That we are dead in our transgressions and sin. Dead because of our transgressions and sins. Now, those two words, transgressions and sin, really present a pretty full picture of human wrongdoing right across the board. Because you see, transgressions is about deliberately stepping over a known boundary. It's about deliberately choosing to walk down the wrong path. Sin, though, means more missing the mark. 
It means failing to reach the required standard. And if you put the two together, it covers just about everything. It covers the things we choose to do that we shouldn't do. And it covers the things that we don't do, the things that we ignore, that we don't bother doing, that we can't be bothered maybe to do, that we know we should. You see, this is the positive and the negative of human sin. Our human sin. That we who were made by God to know Him, love Him, and be loved by Him. To follow Him and be led and guided by Him through life. Instead, chose to rebel against Him. To reject Him and ignore Him. And you see, it's this. It's our choice to sin. Our choice to do wrong. To fail to do the good we should. That separates us from a God who is totally holy pure and good, and that leaves us spiritually dead. That is what it's all about. And you see, this is, I think, something that a lot of us maybe need to get our heads around. That it's possible to be physically, mentally, and emotionally very much alive. It's possible to feel, as some of us do at some point in our life, almost physically invulnerable. It's possible to be mentally at the peak of our ability, if not human ability. It's possible to be emotionally someone who really seems to have it all, whose life is enriched by a whole variety of loving relationships, to have it all. And yet, in the most important area of life, the only area of life that lasts beyond this life, the life of the spirit, the life of the soul. Without Jesus, without through the faith through faith in Jesus that leads God to break into our lives in power, to bring us to spiritual life, it's possible without Jesus, it is. It's possible. We are spiritually dead. People are spiritually dead. Now, I know that can be hard to take in, but you see, that's the reality. People who you see maybe every single day, people who seem to be so full of life, People who seem to have everything good that this life promises. Healthy bodies, healthy minds, happy families, fulfilled in their jobs, no material wants. And yet, until they are saved by Jesus, until they are brought to life by the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, they are spiritually dead. Spiritually dead in this life, And unless this is dealt with, facing eternal spiritual death. That is eternal separation from God, from all that is good, from all that is of love in the life to come. Now again, we might find this hard to really believe of many people. And certainly, there are many people who find this incredibly difficult to believe of themselves. They would want to say perhaps that, hey, They maybe think a lot about God. That they're spiritual people. Lots of people say that today. People who take time to think through and examine what all the various religions have to say about God and about life. Plus they might go on and say, listen, but I'm a a good person. You know, my life, while it's certainly not perfect, is definitely well above average. And you're telling me that someone like me is spiritually dead. Well, I want to say here, you know, most of us have got an inclination to think 
that we're pretty good. Most of us have. For example, uh, I just read that surveys have been done where people have been asked to rate themselves as drivers. The vast majority rate themselves as above average, and a significant number rate themselves as exceptional. Very, very few see themselves as below average. But when you think about it statistically, 50% of people are below average, and quite a lot are well below average. And I'm not giving any names. I'm one. Most of us are inclined, you see, to have a better opinion of ourselves than we deserve. But in the end, ultimately, none of it matters. For ultimately, it's not about how we see ourselves. It's about how God sees us. And God, who made us morally perfect to live in a perfect, sin-free world, we see the fact that we have chosen to sin, the fact that we've brought sin into this sin-free world He made for us, this does separate us from a perfect, sinless God. This does leave us spiritually dead. John Stott says here, Are we to say that such people, if Christ has not saved them, are dead? Yes, indeed. We must and do see this very thing. For in the sphere which matters supremely, which is neither the body nor the mind nor the personality, but the soul, they have no life. And you can tell it. They are blind to the glory of Jesus Christ and deaf to the voice of the Holy Spirit. They have no love for God, no sensitive awareness of His personal reality. No leaping of their spirit towards him in the cry, Abba, Father, or longing for the fellowship of his people. They are as unresponsive to him as a corpse. You see, that's the position of every man, every woman, outside of a faith relationship with Jesus. We are spiritually dead. And we can only be saved from death by God's power released into our life as we put our faith in Jesus. One writer spoke about this in terms of us all once being like the living dead. That's a pretty popular theme in a lot of fiction today. So physically alive, seemingly alive, but all the time actually spiritually dead and ultimately eternally so without Jesus. So then first by the power of God we're saved from death through faith in Christ. And then Paul goes on to tell us that we are also saved from slavery. Verse 2 and 3. When you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. So first here then, we're slaves. We're slaves to the world. Thus too, we followed the ways of the world. Now it's important to note here that the word world is used in, in different ways in the Bible. Sometimes it's used in a, a literal geographic sense, this physical world that we live in. But often, as it is here, 
It's used to refer to the forces. That is, to the attitudes, the values, the philosophies that are at work in this world and that stand against God and against the ways of God. Forces that in various ways try to influence people and ultimately to dominate their thinking and to drive them from God. And how clearly we see this force at work in our society, our society today. For many people won't even think about Christianity. They won't even take time to consider the claims of Christianity because the media has conspired to convince them that faith is out of date, is unfashionable. That to have faith, that will mean you'll stand in the way of progress, you'll stand in the way of our cultural advance. And also because the education system has convinced people that science dictates that Christianity is irrational and illogical. And then you see with their family, their friends, wider society around them, buying into this and implying a subtle pressure that Christianity should be seen as something boring and irrelevant, something that will damage your image, that will lessen your popularity. Well, again, I say, because of this, so many people won't consider the claims of Christian faith. So you see, they are slaves, slaves to this world, slaves to the forces that influence this world, slaves to a world that ultimately deceives and misleads. For you see, of course, the actual facts are that far from being out of date, Christianity provides answers that work to the problems we face in life today. In fact, the contrary is true. And that is that the further that our society moves away from God and faith, the worse our problems are becoming. We see it all around us. And also, far from science disproving Christianity, far from that, more and more of people who are on the cutting edge of science, not the old science that a godless media keeps on churning out, but more of today's cutting edge science is open up to the possibility at least of there being a creator. For instance, Jonathan Wells, a Princeton educated geologist in the early 1960s as a result of the scientific education he received, he considered himself to be an out and out atheist. During the intervening years though, while pursuing an academic career in geology and keeping up to date with the wider scientific community, he began to look at things for himself. He ended up working at the Discovery Institute in Seattle. And this is the quote that he gave in an interview with Lee Strobel. This is what he said. When you analyze all of the most common affirmative evidence from cosmology, physics, astronomy, biology, and so forth, well, I think you'll discover that the positive case for an intelligent designer becomes absolutely compelling. But we're not only slaves to the world, we're also slaves to the flesh. For verse 3 here talks of our gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Now, here, flesh in the Bible, flesh can mean either just this physical body, or it can mean alternatively, as it does here, 
and this is reflected in the, the NIV translation, it can mean our sinful nature. Now, now what we're talking about here mainly are man's natural physical desires, things that were given by God in creation and therefore are good for our physical being as given by God is good. And let me say these desires continue to be good so long as they're used in a God-given, natural, controlled, disciplined way. However you see, these are desires that can so easily be exploited by sin. Be exploited by that tendency to sin that's been part of human nature since Adam's first sin. And so you see, natural desires distorted by sin very soon become unhealthy, unnatural desires. So our desire for rest can degenerate into laziness. Our desire for food into gluttony. Our natural sexual desires into lust and etc. We could go on. And then what we find then is that things that were meant to serve us and to bring us pleasure instead become our masters and dominate us. For our craving for them, you see, dominates our lives. We want these things more than anything other. And this leaves no room for so many other things that are good. And ultimately, and far importantly, and this is the ultimate aim, these desires leave no room for God. No room for God. Notice, though, that when Paul talks about the sinful nature, he, he talks here not only of its desires, but also of its thoughts. You see, the sinful nature, our humanity, warped and distorted by sin, this doesn't only express itself through and influence our physical being, no, it also affects and influences our mind, our thought life as well. You see, our sinful nature, sin at work through our human nature, affects our thought life by fundamentally trying to get us to focus in on ourselves. That's what it's about, influencing our thought life in order to, to make us tend towards being proud, tend towards a self-centered ambition, tend towards an all-round self-centeredness. Because, you see, once we are at the center, once all our thinking revolves about me, around me, making me happy, making me successful, making me look good, making me feel good, once that's the case, there is little or no room to think of God. We are slaves to the flesh. And we will remain slaves to the flesh until God's power, released through faith in Christ, sets us free. But most importantly here, and underlying everything else we've spoken of, we are also slaves to the devil. For verse 2 again talks of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Now, but let's be clear here. When we say that we're slaves to the devil, we're not saying that everyone who's not a Christian before they become a Christian is in some way personally possessed by the devil. That, I'm sure, is true only of a, a tiny minority, not of mankind, 
at in jail, not at all. But what we are saying here, though, is that the devil is the one who stands behind all the other various influences that affect our lives and turn us from God. That he's the great mastermind. He is the supreme influencer, the one who orchestrates the world, orchestrates the flesh, the one who does all he can, sometimes subtly, sometimes by outright frontal attack, anything to keep us away from God. So you see, to be slaves of the devil, we don't need to be living lives that are outrageously immoral or like a, a scene out of the exorcist. We don't. No, as long as the devil can exert enough influence on our lives to keep us away from a true knowledge of God, then the devil is happy and we are his slaves. Now, sometimes we said he does this in a very obvious way through the things we'd maybe normally think of, things like drink and drugs, sex, etc. But at other times, though, the devil is much more cunning and subtle. And what he does is he uses all these different propaganda agencies to influence a slight imbalance in our priorities. To get us to put things that in themselves are good, very good, things like family and friends, career, to get us to put them into the place where they don't belong, into God's first place in our lives. But, you know, let's never underestimate the devil. For though he is at times subtle, and though his power is far less than that of God, yet, you know, his grip is always strong. For example, the word that's used here to describe the devil's work in those who are disobedient, that word is the same word that's used elsewhere in the New Testament to describe God's work in raising Jesus from the dead. Which for me underlines the fact that we can never break free from the devil ourselves. We can never live the Christian life by ourselves. We can never come to faith by ourselves. Only Jesus, only God's power, the Spirit's power, released into our lives through Jesus, can save us, can free us from our slavery to the devil. Well, finally, and briefly, as well as being saved from death, as well as being saved from slavery, we are also saved from condemnation. Is that me again? Was that me? No, it wasn't me. Okay. I get the blame for most things around the house, so I'm just kind of used to taking it. Verse 3, it says, Like the rest, we were objects of wrath. I want to say here that that's a concept that a lot of people don't like. Even some people who would call themselves evangelical Christians don't like this concept of the wrath of God. You see, for them, the thought of a, a loving God and a, and a wrathful God, these things they feel must be mutually self-exclusive. So as they want to keep a loving God, they then ditch the idea of a wrathful God and use all sorts of questionable reasoning to try and justify that. But, you know, they've got all sorts of problems. Not least the fact that the Greek words for wrath and anger are used 36 times in the New Testament. But only five of these times are of human anger. The other 31 in relation to God. So it would seem then 
that the New Testament writers, that they had no problem, no issue with this connection between God and wrath. They clearly, they saw this as a part of who God is. But you know, the root problem that I believe with those who've got a problem with God's wrath against man's sin leading to condemnation, the root problem here is a failure to understand the seriousness of sin, the nature of God, and the nature of His wrath. Because you see, God is a loving God. He is. But He's also a holy and a just God. So sin and evil are abhorrent to God. They are literally an abomination to Him. So God cannot just ignore sin. He can't do that. No, it arouses His wrath. But here, when we talk about wrath, let me just say, get out of your head here, the kind of thinking that's associated with man's anger, with man's wrath. You know, some kind of out of control, excessive, vindictive outburst. That's not what we're talking about here. That's not what's meant by the wrath of God. Rather, God's wrath is about God's measured, controlled, just, and absolutely necessary, necessary reaction to man's sin, to our sin. You see, God's holiness and justice demands that He reacts to sin. It demands that He deals with sin. So because of our sin, we are rightly, justly, judged and condemned. We are rightly under God's wrath with no grounds or right of appeal. No grounds. Because, you see, we chose to turn from God. We chose to reject God. So what right have we to appeal for mercy? We are condemned. And only by God's power can we be saved from condemnation. But the good news is, we are. We are. We are saved by God's power. We are saved by His powerful love made flesh in Jesus Christ, which we make ours through faith in Him. For in Christ, God in His love paid the price for our sin that His holiness demanded. In Christ, He paid the price we could never pay. As on the cross, He gave His perfect, sinless, holy life to pay for our sin. And so to make it possible for us by faith in Him to be saved from death. To be saved from slavery to the world, the flesh, and the devil. And to be saved from condemnation and wrath. Because of Jesus, we can be saved tonight, but only by faith, by faith in Him. Let's come and pray together. Father, we thank You that Your holiness and Your love, Your power, Your justice, All of these things are unchanged, as is your wrath towards sin. But tonight, Lord, we can be saved. We can 
be set free. We can be made whole if only we take advantage of the salvation that you offer to us through faith in Jesus, your Son. He paid the price. He gave it all. Lord, help us to take hold tonight of Jesus and the riches of his grace. As we pray in Christ's name, amen.